Um, well, if you would, uh, I would ask you to turn your, in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 1, as our text will be the first five verses. And I hope to orient us a little bit to the book that we'll be studying for several weeks. I want to begin by observing that God's people are not immune to discouragement. And I expect that I don't have to defend that statement to you. Despite all the blessings of salvation, despite all the privileges of fellowship and communion with God and his people, each one of us would acknowledge, if we've walked with Christ for any significant length of time, that there are times when disappointment and discouragement and sometimes even disillusionment get the better of us. This is not a perfect world. We still labor under the curse of sin. Externally, where sin has plagued the world with brokenness and futility. And internally, as the remaining sin in our flesh causes a perpetual war within, God's people are not immune to discouragement. We're not even immune to discouragement with God himself. As, as truly ludicrous as that is, it's true, isn't it? Because disappointment with our circumstances is disappointment with the God who is the author and governor of our circumstances. No event, no circumstance, no aspect of our lives whatsoever falls outside the purview of God's absolute sovereignty and meticulous providence. And so in times of sustained disappointment, in seasons of discouragement, when it seems like you've ordered your own life according to God's commandments, and yet the promises of blessing that attend obedience just simply don't seem to materialize, we can be tempted to become disillusioned, even with God himself. Maybe you've sought for many years to find a godly spouse. You've done all that you can think of to ensure that you are the right person for another Christian, and yet the Lord hasn't yet given the gift of marriage. Maybe you've raised your kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and despite training them up in the way they should go, now that they're adults, they reject the gospel and live in rebellion. Perhaps you've battled against a particular besetting sin, and you hoped by now, after attending to all the means of grace, that there would be greater progress in sanctification. Or you look at the culture, and you see it in absolute chaos. You may be old enough to remember a time when the church's influence on the world seems, seemed strong, and now it seems virtually non-existent. In one way or another, you begin to doubt whether God really does keep his promises, whether his word really is trustworthy. Now, of course, you know that he does keep his promises, but for some reason it seems like, well, that's not so in my case. And so you become disappointed with God and you cry out to him, what are you doing, God? Where are you? Where is the fulfillment of your promises? And when that happens, it's not like you renounce Christianity. You don't just throw your hands up and say, well, that's it. I'm going back to the world. I'm living like a pagan. No, you know better than that. But you begin to act like that just a bit. 
you become a functional unbeliever. You still go through the motions. You, you come to church. You go to Bible study. You still read your Bible, maybe. You might even still pray. But in all the outward spiritual activity, there's an inward apathy, a lifelessness, a heartlessness in all your acts of worship. Well, a similar phenomenon was taking place in Israel in the day of the prophet Malachi. Malachi, along with Haggai and Zechariah, was one of the post-exilic prophets. They ministered after Judah's return from the Babylonian exile in 538 B.C., And uh, Judah had indeed returned to the land, a remarkable providence of God's grace and faithfulness. But things weren't exactly glorious. The returning exiles had numbered only around 150,000, and they'd been reduced to a minor province of the Persian Empire on a strip of land about 20 by 25 miles. When they returned, the city of Jerusalem lay in ruins, and the book of Ezra documents the well-organized opposition to rebuild both the temple and the city walls. Things were not easy. But about 20 years after the return from Babylon, God sent Haggai and Zechariah to speak His Word to His people Israel. And by and large, their message was one of great promise and great encouragement. In Haggai 1.8, The prophet commands Zerubbabel to rebuild Yahweh's temple in the place of Solomon's temple that had been destroyed by Babylon. And so Israel went to work. And Ezra tells us in Ezra 3, 10 and 11, that when just the foundation of the temple was laid, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph with cymbals, they sang praising and giving thanks to Yahweh, saying, for he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised Yahweh. But then in the very next verses, Ezra says in chapter 3, verse 12, that many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice. Such a curious scene, fanfare and rejoicing and thanksgiving on the one hand, and yet weeping and wailing and mourning on the other, so much so that the people couldn't distinguish the shouts of celebration from the cries of mourning. And Haggai explains why in chapter 2, verse 3, God says to the people, who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? And so it was plain that the temple of Zerubbabel paled in comparison to the splendor and the beauty of Solomon's temple. And the evident difference between the glory days of the united monarchy under David and Solomon and this little ragtag tribe of survivors survivors from captivity, that reminded Judah that they certainly were not what they used to be. But Yahweh went on to promise through Haggai, as we learned last week in Haggai 2.6, that he would once again shake the heavens and the earth and that all the nations would come with their wealth and fill the temple of Yahweh with glory. And in Haggai 2.9, that the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. And in this place, I will give shalom. I will give peace, wholeness, rest 
security. God says, you may be weeping for the glory of Solomon's temple, but I tell you that a day is coming when the glory of this temple will be greater even than Solomon's. And the prophet Zechariah brings this same message of hope. Zechariah 8, 2, thus says Yahweh of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Verse 3, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. It'll be the city of truth and the holy mountain. Verse 4 says, old men and old women will sit again in the streets of Jerusalem, each man with his staff in his hand because of age. And the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in its streets. Verse 7, behold, I am going to save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west, and I will bring them back, and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. And then in the final verses of Haggai, as Josiah showed us last week, we find that God's chosen servant, the descendant of Zerubbabel, would come and be as Yahweh's signet ring in overthrowing the nations and bringing all of these promises to pass. The temple will be magnificent. The city that once lay in rubble and ruins will be filled with people who survive to old age because of the security of the land. Children will play in the streets. Messiah will come. Israel will be my people and I will be their God. My covenant promises will come to pass in all their glory. But Malachi prophesies in the mid to late 400s BC, somewhere around 60 to 80 years after the rebuilding of the temple and all those glorious promises of God through Haggai and Zechariah. And Judah saw no such messianic renovation. They were still under the thumb of the Persian Empire, whose taxes and tributes kept Judah in economic depression. The land was not yielding produce fruitfully. Malachi 3.11 speaks of a devourer that was destroying the fruits of the ground as a result of God's judgment for disobedience. The Shekinah glory of God had not yet filled Zerubbabel's temple the way that it had in the tabernacle in Exodus 40 or in Solomon's temple in 1 Kings 8. Malachi 3.1 speaks of a day when the Lord will come to his temple in the future. But that meant that in spite of everything Haggai and Zechariah promised, he was not there yet. The Messiah hadn't come. Jerusalem hadn't been restored. The temple wasn't magnificent. And so on the heels of all these glorious promises of restoration, Israel began to wonder where God was and when he was going to fulfill all these great promises. And after years and years of waiting and hoping... Both the priests and the people became disillusioned. One commentator writes that God's promises seemed a cruel mockery. Things had not improved since the final decades of the 6th century. The Messiah had not yet come, and the people had by and large given up trusting God to do anything. You get a glimpse of that attitude in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, where God gives voice to the people's complaints. He says, "'You have said it is vain to serve God.'" And what profit is it that we've kept his charge and that we've walked in mourning before Yahweh of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. 
you hear the disillusionment and the disaffection, the, the jaded cynicism. What's the point of all of this? We rebuilt the city. We rebuilt the temple. We're offering the sacrifices. Where is the promised restoration? All we see are the pagans being built up and blessed. God had let them down. He hadn't kept his promises, so they thought. The enemies of righteousness prosper while those who seek to follow God languish. And so they left off in their devotion to God and to obedience to his commandments. Right at the center of the book in chapter 2, verse 10, we get a summary of the entire problem. Malachi 2.10, why do we deal treacherously against each other, each against his brother, so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Widespread covenant disobedience. The breaking of the covenant law of Moses, betraying one another and dealing unjustly. The priests were just going through the motions while offering blemished sacrifices. We see that in chapter 1, verse 6, all the way to 2, 9. In chapters, uh, chapter 2, verses 10 to 16, we learn the people had engaged in widespread divorce and then intermarried with the pagans. Chapters, chapter 3, verses 6 to 12, they had left off tithes and offerings. Times were tough, right? And so rather than giving to God of their first fruits, they held back their money for themselves. And so you see the attitude, apathy, indifference, disillusionment. God doesn't seem to care about us anymore. Why should we care about him And if he doesn't keep his word, why should we worry about keeping his word? And so in that context, God sends the prophet Malachi to rebuke Israel for their faithlessness. And he does that by means of six disputations. God comes to argue with his disaffected people. And each of these disputations all have the same formula. There is an assertion by God, like, I have loved you. There's Israel's insolent rejection of God's declaration. But you say, how have you loved us? And then there is God's response or rebuttal to Israel's rejection. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? And we see that formula all throughout the book, structured in six disputations. And so God has come to his disappointed, discouraged, disillusioned people to give voice to their complaints against him for what they believe is a failure to keep his promises. And he comes to dispute with them, to engage them in debate, to test their accusations against sound argumentation and to convict them of their disobedience and unfaithfulness, as well as to prove that his promises have not failed, and that he will keep his covenant unto the glory of his own name. And so, dear Christian, if you have ever found yourself disappointed with the circumstances of your life, if you have ever doubted the faithfulness of God's promises because of it, if you've ever been tempted to blame God because of it, to become lax and apathetic in your devotion to him, well, then the message of Malachi is for you. God comes to reason with us. God comes to dispute with us, to expose the wicked reasonings of our hearts, to call us to repentance and to faithfulness. But he also comes 
to restore our souls, to encourage us, to convince us of his own unfailing faithfulness, as well of his immutable, eternal covenant love for his people. And as we come to the first five verses of God's word to Israel through Malachi this evening, we find that this book of argument and debate and rebuke begins in quite an unexpected way. It begins with a message of love. Let's read the opening five verses. The oracle of the word of Yahweh to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says Yahweh. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares Yahweh? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom Yahweh is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this and you will say, Yahweh be magnified beyond the border of Israel. This introduction to Malachi's prophecy basically breaks down into four parts, each around the theme of God's faithful love to his faithless people. The first is the declaration of God's love. Number one, the declaration of God's love. Verse two, I have loved you, says Yahweh. I have loved you. The verb is in the perfect tense which speaks of an action that has taken place in the past whose results continue into the present. And the love of God consists in the determinative act of God's will to benefit His beloved, to do them good. And so God is not coming to His faithless, disobedient people and saying, you know, I just think you are great. I know you're going through a rough time, but I want you to know I love you. It's not such a sentimental, saccharine kind of thing. He's saying he's he's drawing their minds to a very specific act of his love to them, bestowed on them in the past, the results of which continue even to the present day. And what act of love was that? It was God's sovereign choice of Israel to be his covenant people. The unconditional election of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to be the undeserved heir of God's gracious promises. We can see that in two important passages in the book of Deuteronomy. Turn with me, if you would, to Deuteronomy, first to chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Moses is delivering the covenant law to the second generation of Israelites, those who are about to take possession of the land of Canaan. And he says in Deuteronomy 10, verses 14 and 15, Behold, to Yahweh your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did Yahweh set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them. 
even you, above all peoples, as it is this day. Notice how Moses uses all of those terms synonymously, set affection on, love, and chose. And then turn back just a few chapters to Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. There Moses says, Yahweh did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because Yahweh loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. And you see it again, set his love, choose, loved, kept his oath, kept his promise And so when God comes to Judah in the late 5th century B.C. and calls them Jacob and declares that he has loved them, he is referring to this. I have chosen you out from among all the nations of the world. I have set my love on you. I have established my covenant with you. I have made you my people. One commentator said the love of Yahweh is an act of election which makes Israel Yahweh's child. And that's exactly right. Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1, God says, When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I have called my son. I redeemed you out of slavery. I led you through the wilderness. I gave you the land that I promised. I set my love upon you. I made you my son and swore on the honor of my own name to bless you forever. I chose you. I have loved you. And that ought to make us worship God for his grace. You see, God will rebuke his people for their covenant disobedience for their divorce and intermarriage with pagans, for the corrupt priesthood and heartless worship, for the oppression of the poor and withholding offerings from God, and even for their insolent accusations against the justice of God. That's coming. But before he does any of that, he begins with a message of reassurance, of good news, with a declaration of his steadfast, loyal, unchanging covenant love. Before he confronts them with the holy standard of his law, he is going to comfort them with the gracious promises of the gospel. I know you're under the thumb of the Persians. I know that you're an insignificant province on a small strip of land. I know that you think I've forgotten my promises to you, but I assure you I have loved you. I have joined you to myself. I have put my own name upon you. Jeremiah 13, 11, For as the waistband clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole household of Israel and the whole household of Judah cling to me that they might be for me a people, for a renown, for praise, and for glory. You see, you will receive the covenant promises. You will be a blessing to the nations. Hosea eleven eight and 9, God says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Admah? How can I treat you like Zeboiim? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. 
I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Every rebuke that I will issue to you comes in the context of the truth that you are still my people and I am still your God. And dear Christian, you are no less covenant bound to Yahweh than Judah was. In fact, we might say we are even more covenant bound to him if such a thing were possible because we live in the age of fulfillment. We live in the age, we partake of the new covenant. We're united to Messiah, the mediator of that covenant. And so in your disappointment, in your discouragement, in your faithlessness and disobedience, God comes to you first with the gospel assurance of his steadfast covenant love for you for Christ's sake. I have loved you dear people. I have chosen you in Christ before the foundations of the world, and my grace will bring my promises to pass. How faithful he is, even to the faithless. But how does Israel respond to this declaration of God's love? It's certainly not the response that such lavish grace deserves, That brings us, secondly, to the disputation of God's love. The disputation of God's love. Look again at verse 2. I have loved you, says Yahweh, but you say, how have you loved us? And that is every bit as disrespectful, insolent, ungrateful, and exasperated as it sounds. One commentator says, this response rings with petulance, and perversity. Another says it measures the depth of despair, doubt, and cynicism in the restoration community. Really is an astonishing response. It basically indicates that Israel is disputing every aspect of the covenant election that we've just surveyed. These people who had been brought back from exile into the land who had seen the temple rebuilt, who had seen the walls of Jerusalem be restored, all on the very basis of the covenant love and sovereign election of Yahweh, are denying the covenant love and sovereign election of Yahweh. How have you loved us? Look at us. We're nobodies. We're on a tiny strip of land. We're servants of the Persians. You've cursed our crops. The economy is terrible. The temple can't compare to Solomon's. There's no glory cloud. There's no Ark of the Covenant. You've promised restoration in a kingdom. We don't see any of that. Where is this covenant love of yours? Now, be honest with yourselves. Does any of that sound familiar? Would any of you acknowledge that sometimes you are tempted to be so consumed with your circumstances, with the state of the world, with the state of the country, with the state of the church, that you begin to feel sorry for yourself? And all the glorious privileges of divine blessings in Christ, they just seem far away to the point that you even begin to question the love and faithfulness of God who is abounding in loving kindness and truth 
this passage counsels you to confess the petulance and perversity of such a thought. That those thoughts are sinful. That they are unworthy to be thought of such a God as the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction. So let this text bring you to repentance if you're there this evening. Well, how does God respond to his people's disputation of his love? That brings us, number three, to the demonstration of God's love, the demonstration. Look again at verse 2. How have you loved us? And God says, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. God demonstrates his assertion that he has loved the descendants of Jacob by drawing a contrast between the descendants of Jacob and the descendants of Jacob's brother Esau. And you remember the story of Jacob and Esau, Genesis 25. Isaac's wife, Rebekah, is pregnant with twins, and even from the womb, the two struggled with uh, one another. And God tells Rachel that two nations are in her womb and that the older would serve the younger. Esau was the firstborn, and so he should have inherited the patriarchal blessing from Isaac. But before Isaac could have ever set his love upon Esau, his firstborn, God set his love upon Jacob. God chose the younger Jacob to inherit the blessings of the covenant. He chose his line rather than Esau's line to be the one from whom Messiah would come and bless the nations. This is what God means when he says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Loved and hated are covenantal terms. Love is not sentimental gushiness. And hate is not personal animosity in this text. As we saw before, God's love of Jacob speaks of the Father's sovereign election of Israel to be his covenant nation. Again, yet on your fathers did Yahweh set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after, after them. In Isaiah 41, 8 and 9, God says, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant and I have chosen you and not rejected you. See that? To love here speaks of covenantal choice and to hate speaks of covenantal rejection. You see that? Elsewhere in Scripture, where in Matthew 6.24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other. By which he doesn't mean that if you ever take a job different than the one you were going to take, you have to despise the other employer in your heart for the rest of your days. No, he just means that you, you've devoted yourself to the one, and you've, lo- and you've loved that one, and then you've rejected the other one. Or in Luke 14.26, where Jesus says, If anyone comes to me... And does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
Now, surely Jesus isn't saying that his disciples are supposed to walk around muttering, boy, I can't stand my parents and my spouse and my kids and my siblings. No, the point is, if it ever happens that you have to choose between faithfulness to Christ and faithfulness to family, you reject your most treasured earthly relationships and you love Christ by preferring him, by choosing him. And so God is telling Israel that he has loved them by setting his unconditional covenant favor upon them and that he has hated Edom by rejecting them from from being his covenant nation. And this choice is entirely unconditional. God's love is not bestowed on those he loves because of anything in them. We saw that in Deuteronomy 7, 7, and 8. Moses again says, Yahweh did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number, but simply because the Lord loved you. He loved you because he loved you. In Deuteronomy 9, 4, and 5, he tells them, Do not say, because of my righteousness, Yahweh has brought me in to possess this land. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you're going to possess their land. It's because Yahweh is faithful to his covenant. And then in Romans chapter 9, when the Apostle Paul is illustrating God's sovereign freedom in his unconditional election of individuals to salvation, he he uses this very discriminating choice between Jacob and Esau to substantiate his case. Romans 9.11, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written. And then he quotes our passage in Malachi 1, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated This puts the lie to the notion that God chose Jacob because he was virtuous and that God rejected Esau because he was wicked. Now, sure, Esau was no prize. Genesis 25 says he despised his birthright, that token of what would would have been God's covenantal love to him. He regarded it so lightly that he sold it for a bowl of soup. Genesis 26, 34 and 35 says he married a Hittite woman and brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. During the Exodus, Numbers 20 tells us that Edom refused to grant Israel passage through the town of Kadesh, even withstanding them with military force. Psalm 137, along with the whole prophecy of Obadiah, records how Edom came to the aid of Babylon as they destroyed Jerusalem and brought Israel into captivity. There was plenty not to like about Esau and his descendants Edom, but God says Esau's sins were not the basis of God's rejection of him. And at the same time, Jacob was no saint himself. He was a deceiver. He was a manipulator. God didn't choose Jacob because he foresaw that Jacob would be better than Esau. No, Romans 9 tells us that works have nothing to do with God's election, not because of works, but because of him who calls. The basis for God's election of some and his rejection of others is grounded entirely in the one who calls 
not at all in the works of those who are called. Divine election, whether of nations, whether of corporate entities, whether unto service, or whether of individuals unto salvation, is unconditional. And yet, how has that unconditional choice worked itself out? Look at verse, verses 3 and 4 again. I've hated Esau, and I've made his mountains a desolation, and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we'll return and build up the ruins. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom Yahweh is indignant forever. That, that is truly astonishing. This love of Jacob and hatred of Esau is not just some sort of esoteric theoretical bookkeeping in God's mind. God's election of Israel and rejection of Edom has teeth. The mountains of Seir that protected the territory of Edom were no match for Yahweh's sovereign purpose to execute His judgment. Obadiah prophesied that very thing in verses 3 and 4 of his prophecy. There God says to Edom, The arrogance of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down. And God says in our verse, that he has done just that. He has made the land of their inheritance the place where jackals abide. The jackal is a, a wilderness animal. And so God is saying, I have made Edom into a wilderness. How did that happen? At the time of the Babylonian campaign against Israel in 600 to 586, Edom is assisting Babylon in Judah's destruction and conquering parts of their territory as they're carried away to exile. What happened by the late 400s B.C. that they were destroyed? Well, the historical record isn't perfectly clear, and certainly after Malachi's prophecy, you, you have those 400 years of silence. But uh, we, we do know that the Babylonian king Nabonidus conducted, conducted several military campaigns against Edom beginning in 552 B.C., and then by 312 B.C., I would say about 100, and so, 100 or so years after Malachi finishes, the Nabataean Arabs had totally overrun the Edomite territory. And so between the Babylonians and the Nabataeans, God had kept his promise of Edom's destruction. Esau's land was a desolate wilderness fit only for the jackals. And that language wouldn't have been lost on Israel, on Judah in Malachi's day, in Jeremiah 9, 11, God makes that same promise of destruction upon Judah for her disobedience, a destruction which came in the form of the Babylonians. In Jeremiah 9, 11, God says, I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a haunt of jackals, and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. The same threat of judgment that came upon Jacob's land for their disobedience did eventually come on Esau's for their disobedience as well. But what's the difference? What's the difference between the two peoples? The difference is 
Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. The difference is if Edom tries to rebuild, God is going to tear down. Their land will henceforth be known as the territory of wickedness, not the city of truth like Zechariah says of Israel, not the holy mountain. No, these mountains are going to be cast down. And Yahweh's indignation will abide on them forever, not 70 years, forever. You've never met an Edomite. But here Israel was in her land, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple, alive and breathing. How have I loved you? Wasn't Esau your brother? Weren't you twins? I could have just as easily set my electing love on him instead of you, couldn't I? I certainly didn't choose you over him because of anything in you. And in fact, since he was the oldest, it would have made more sense if I chose him, wouldn't it? How have I loved you? You deserve your land to be a desolation and left to the jackals just as much as he does. And yet here you are back in your land while Edom lies in ruins. You couldn't have done a thing to free yourselves from Babylon. It took me raising up Cyrus and delivering you. And you know what? If Edom ever musters the strength to try to rebuild their land with with the same sovereignty with which I delivered you, by that very same sovereignty, I will tear them down. How have I loved you? I haven't given you over to yourselves and left you in your state of deserved condemnation the way that I did to those who deserve that condemnation no less than you. How does God demonstrate his love to his people? He points to the judgment of those who are not his people. And he says, that could have been you. And I wonder, friends, if you have ever considered the judgment of God that falls upon those outside of Christ and felt loved by God because of it. Because we learn from this passage that at least one way that God demonstrates his love to his elect is by displaying to us his hatred of the reprobate. And that's not a truth you often hear in contemporary evangelicalism. But will you deny that that's the teaching of this very text? How have you loved us? Look at Esau. In his inscrutable wisdom, God has chosen to set his saving love upon some and not others. Those whom he passes by receive justice. They do not receive injustice. They receive the just punishment of their sins. But those whom he chooses, those on whom he sets his covenant love, they receive grace. Nobody gets injustice. The reprobate get justice. The elect get grace. Nobody is treated wrongly. And I wonder if you've considered, Christian, your unbelieving sibling who grew up in the same home as you, who were evangelized, who was evangelized by the same parents, 
who went to the same church, who heard the same sermons. And I wonder if you've considered the futility of the life that they're living, wasting their lives on the broken cisterns of alcohol and drugs, of casual sex and meaningless relationships, of money and fame here on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, and which will perish with fire before long. And I wonder if you've considered your life in comparison. Your quiet, hardworking, what might seem uneventful, unremarkable life, work and church and Bible study and prayer, And I wonder if you felt loved by God. I wonder if you've trembled. If you've been moved to tears. That because of nothing at all that distinguished you from your unbelieving brother or sister or friend or co-worker. God chose you. And entered into covenant with you. And appointed such a one so lovely as Christ to be your mediator. To bear your sins in his own body on the cross. And rescued you from a wasted life of what is ultimately joyless futility. No matter how many pasted smiles the world wears. And rescued you not only from a worthless this life, but an eternity of just punishment in hell. Think of who you were before Christ. And think of all the fruitless, meaningless things that you could be doing with your life right now. And yet here you sit in the household of God under the means of his grace in fellowship with his people, with a clean conscience, with your sins forgiven, with Christ's righteousness draped across your shoulders under the smile of almighty God. And with an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Friends, I don't care how bad your circumstances are. And for some of you, they are bad. Worse than I'd like to imagine. We just got word of a friend who buried their 10-year-old granddaughter, lost their 10-year-old granddaughter, will bury her before long, just yesterday. The circumstances are not nothing. But they are no comparison to how he has loved you. How has he loved you? That is how he has loved you. I've given you to my son. I've given my son for you. I've welcomed you into my household. I've adopted you back. I've put my, my, the robe of my own obedience upon you. Sure. Job twenty four twenty four, The wicked, they're exalted a little while. What does he say? But then they're gone. They're brought, brought low, and like everything gathered up, even like heads of the grain, they are cut off. But the righteous man, Psalm ninety-two, twelve, will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Planted in the house of Yahweh, they will flourish in the courts of our God. I've loved you. And I've not loved them because of nothing in you but my free, sovereign grace. But he's not finished. We've seen a declaration of God's love. 
the disputation of God's love and the demonstration of God's love, let's consider just briefly the display of God's love. The display. Look at verse 5. Your eyes will see this. And you will say, Yahweh be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Judah was saying they hadn't seen any tangible evidence of Yahweh's love for them. God says, oh, you're going to see. You're going to watch as I destroy my enemies and exalt my people. You will search in vain for an Edomite. But the seed of Abraham will be as numerous as stars in the sky or as sand on the seashore. And when you see it, there won't be any of this. But how have you loved us? No, there's not going to be any of that. You know what you're going to say then? Yahweh be magnified. May God's name be lifted up and exalted. May the name of the Lord be praised from the mountaintops. Glory be to God for his unwavering faithfulness and steadfast love. Look at Malachi 1.11. Let's listen to how he declares his, what is uppermost in his own affections here. He says, for from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that's pure for my name will be great above or among the nations. Among the nations, beyond the border of Israel, verse 5 says. You see, this glorious, faithful, covenant-keeping, loving God is not just king over the Levant. His domain is not merely some strip of land in the Middle East. He is the king of the nations. And God has magnified his name beyond the border of Israel, hasn't he? You and I are sitting here tonight, evidence of that. There may be a few of us who are descendants of Jacob, but I would guess that the overwhelming majority of us are Gentiles. What's happened? The name of Yahweh has been magnified beyond the border of Israel. Through Jesus Christ, descendant of David, the seed of Abraham, all the families of the earth have been blessed. And turn with me to Galatians chapter 3 and verses 8 and 9. In Galatians 3, 8 and 9, Paul quotes that very promise that all the nations would be blessed in Abraham. And you know what he calls it? He calls it the gospel that was preached beforehand to Abraham. That through Abraham's seed, God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Look at it. Foreseeing, the, the, Galatians 3, 8, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. And so then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. What's happened? Christ has come. The very gospel that was promised has come. And, and, then, and then Paul goes on to preach that gospel. Galatians 3.10, for as many are as of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. You want to get to heaven by your works? Fine. The standard is perfect obedience. Perfect adherence to every law that God has revealed in his word. Otherwise, you're under the curse of God. And that's all of us. 
Not one of us has rendered perfect obedience to every commandment of God. Not for an hour of our lives have we done such a thing. And so we are cursed. But Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. All the punishment for all the sins of all the people whom God loved, whom he's chosen and set his love on, every ounce of his just wrath against the sins of the elect broke over the head of Christ as he suffered on Calvary. And then he died and he was buried, but he rose in victory on the third day and he promises that everyone who trusts in him alone for righteousness will be saved. Friend, if you're here tonight and you've not tasted the sweetness of knowing this Christ, if you've not savored the grace of his forgiveness by faith alone, I call you to repent of your sins, to abandon all confidence in yourself, to earn your way to heaven, and to put all your hope for righteousness squarely on the shoulders of this glorious Savior. And to my brothers and sisters who have trusted him, rejoice that this God is your God. This God who sets his love upon the undeserving, who comes to reassure even the faithless with his unchangeable love and covenant faithfulness, who says in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Do you understand the grace in that verse? He has put his own name upon you, Christian. And he cannot deny himself. And he put his name on you, not because of anything that he could have dreamed that you could have done. Just because he was free to do so and did it. And so because he freely puts his name on you, he then pursues your good with all of the fervor and and allegiance that he has for his own name. And you heard it, my name will be great. When your heart grabs a hold of that, free, sovereign, gospel assurance that we are loved despite our faithlessness, you lay hold of a powerful motive for faithfulness. Just as no works of our own make God begin to love us, so also no works of our own can make God stop loving us. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And to be assured of that, Grace Church, is a powerful motive to make war against sin and to run hard after holiness. It is not license to kick back and say, I'm loved anyway, What does it matter if I fight sin? No, no, no. If your heart apprehends this, that is not your response. Not ever. Your response is, how could a God so great love me and I live out of accord with the grace that I've been shown? No, no, no. 
I will set my hand to the plow of Christian holiness. I will mortify that nagging sin. I will get up a half an hour, hour earlier and open my Bible and get on my face before God just to remind myself of this very free justification that I enjoy by grace so that I can set my feet upon the rock of a righteousness not my own and press on to lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of. You don't do this in order to be loved. You do it because we have been loved. I have loved you. Let's pray. Father, if, if our hearts had words, we would say them. If, if our, our voices could, could sing properly, the, the praises do your name, we would lift them. And as we stand before the mountain of such great love, we find that we can only humble ourselves, put our hands over our mouths, and just delight in you for your goodness to us, for who you are to us. Oh, we think of the places we could have been right now. And we, and we worship you for plucking us out a brand from the burning And giving us not just a church, but even this church. We we love you and we pray that all the love and affection in our hearts right now would translate into a life of devotion to you. That we would find here all the strength necessary to put sin to death and to run hard after Christ. Because he is worthy of it. You are worthy of it. We pray that we would not just leave here and think, well, that was great to meditate upon. I pray that it would be an agent of change in this body and that sin would suffer because of it, because your love is so great and your grace is so bottomless that we couldn't dream of doing anything else. Be gracious to us still more. All we can do is ask for more. All we can do is be still more needy. And we fling ourselves upon your bountiful hand. We pray that you would get what you're worthy of in us. In Christ's name, amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.